Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Semper Virens Fund podcast, an audio foray deep into the natural and cultural history of California's Santa Cruz Mountains. I'm your host, Ryan Masters, Director of Communications here at Semper Virens Fund. In this episode, we delve into the world of birds, more precisely, how birds of the Santa Cruz Mountains region and elsewhere reveal the secrets of the natural world. As you'll discover, you can learn a great deal about which animals are coming and going all around you if you learn how to listen to the alarms raised by songbirds and other bird species. Guiding us on this journey is John Young, author of the book, What the Robin Knows. John's a lifelong birder, tracker, and naturalist with singular insights into the physical and auditory language of birds. As you'll hear, he spent his entire life studying bird behavior around the world, from his childhood home in New Jersey to the far reaches of the Kalahari. Yet, John's interested in far more than just ornithology. His interest in bird language derives from a much larger passion, nature connection. John's work mentoring children and adults in the art of wilderness awareness stems from the guidance he received as a young man and from other cultures around the world. To learn more about that, check out his organization's website, 8shields.org. That's the number 8, shields.org. Now, before we get started with the language of birds with John Young, a few words about Semper Virens Fund. Since 1900, Semper Virens Fund has permanently protected more than 53 square miles of redwood forests in the Santa Cruz Mountains by raising more than $50 million to purchase and protect forest lands. These lands provide critical wildlife habitat, clean air and water, and opportunities for all of us to go out and enjoy the incredible local redwood forests. Pooling funds from a wide base of donors in the community, Semper Virens Fund buys land, establishes conservation easements, and negotiates trail easements. Because we've been working in the region for more than 100 years, our relationships with local landowners and our conservation partners are deep and strong. With support from our donors and with matching public funds, we act quickly and decisively to permanently protect redwood forests as new opportunities arise. If you'd like more information about Semper Virens Fund, our mission, how you can be involved or provide financial assistance to help connect, protect, and restore the Santa Cruz Mountains, visit us at sempervirens.org. That's S-E-M-P-E-R-V-I-R-E-N-S.org or call 650-949-1453, extension 207. And now, I give you John Young and the language of birds. I promise that after listening to this, your time in the Santa Cruz Mountains will be spent listening for bird alarms and looking for Cooper's hawks. All right, thank you so much. Um, thanks, Ryan, for your help here getting the technical support up. Thanks, everyone, for coming out um, on a busy weeknight, and Garrett and Mandy Lee in the back there from our Eight Shields organization who are helping There'll be, if anyone wants a copy of What the Robin Knows or other things related to bird language, they'll be there at the end and I'll be willing to sign books until people are tired of standing in line. Not that we have that many anyway, so. <laughs> and maybe you won't want to after you hear me, who knows. Um, and, and I'm really excited about Semper Virens. I was telling Ryan earlier that 
we first started running Nature Connection mentoring programs in California back in the 1990s, and the place where we worked was right at the entrance of Little Basin. There's a Sempervirens property there, and we taught the art of mentoring there. It was one of the first art of mentorings in California, which was really influential in getting a lot of interesting Nature Connection-based projects going in the region. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming, and I'm wondering uh, who here has read the book What the Robin Knows that, okay, just one of you, great. Um, <clears throat> it's really a bestseller, it's, everyone knows about it everywhere. Um, it's fascinating, thank you. What is your name? I'm Jackie Green. Jackie, so Jackie thinks it's fascinating, and I, I appreciate that. I think bird language is fascinating, and how many have, have, have anyone even heard of bird language before, or even thought about it, right? Now, I am super interested in the phenomenology of connection itself. Like, what is connection? Why does it work? Why are some people ultra-connected to the natural world? And why are some people ultra-disconnected from the natural world? And there's a continuum. And I want to understand what do the people who are super-connected have in common? And are there things that we can learn from that that can transfer efficiently and scalably over to the majority of the global population, which is largely disconnected, which is actually not great news if you actually are concerned about the future of our planet, right? I think somehow some people think that we can actually get by without a planet, <laughs> maybe. Um, and in 100 years from now, we'll have it all sorted. We'll have all these other planets colonized, and we don't really actually need this one. But I think most of the people in this room probably don't believe that, right? Um, I, you know grew up in one of the most nature-connected community villages on the whole planet, and it was a suburb of New York City in New Jersey, right? Everybody there is super nature-connected. No. I actually grew up in one of the places that's on the other end of the spectrum, um, the disconnected side. And I worked for Monmouth County Park System as an interpretive naturalist starting at the age of 16. So. Um, Maybe they couldn't find good help in those days, but I, I think it was more because I was one of those children that my grandmother encouraged me to go catch everything and keep it for a little while in a cage until I got bored of it. I had to name it, and then I had to go put it back exactly where I caught it as soon as I stopped being interested in it. So she, was, she was an amazing mentor um, of Irish heritage, grew up on the land as farming families. It seemed like there were some cultural threads that were passing down through the generations that made her really magical with all the grandkids, right? So a lot of my cousins are really super interested in nature and connected to nature because of her mentoring. When I was about nine years old, <clears throat> I began to explore the possibility that I was the oldest child in the woods and all the other kids were going into organized sports, right? Because that's where you go next. It's cool to play in the woods. But when you get to a certain age, it's not cool to play in the woods anymore. And you don't want to be the oldest kid in the woods, that's for sure. And all the other kids that are older than you, that are cooler, have already gone. So I was on my way to sports when I met um, a neighbor who'd been living there up the street from my parents, who himself had been raised with a really powerful Nature Connection mentor from one of the most connected people side of the list on the continuum. And he was looking for someone to take under his wing to mentor the way he was mentored since he was a little boy. So I got really lucky, um, or maybe not, because uh, I think I got mentored right out of my culture. You know, I, I so didn't relate to where I was living. And when I went home to tell my parents about my deep interest in nature 
And my parents' friends would come over and they would say, Jonathan, what are you doing with your life? And I'd say, well, I'm doing all these great things with nature and, you know, these, this and that. And they'd say, why would anyone want to do that? You know, <laughs> and that was my supportive mentoring culture. Um, no, Jonathan, you should really do something with your life. Your mother's worried about you. You're a smart kid. You should make something of yourself. So all the messages, really, right? Even, even those sort of messages are kind of like, well, there is no value in nature connection. There, there doesn't have any value. It's what you do. It's cute when you're little, but now you've grown up. It's time to join the real world, which I argued with my dad about quite a bit at the age of 19. I'm like, what real world are we talking about here, dad? You know? Um, so that was my background, but I was raised, you know, I'd go out to my place where I had to go and sit. We call it a sit spot now. We didn't, didn't have a name in those days because it didn't need a name. Um, it was just a place where I went and sat. My mentor would say, you need to get to know one place really well. So I want you to go sit and then come home and I'll call you at dinner time and ask you some questions. So I, I'm like, the only, only reason you sit in nature is when you have a fishing pole. That's kind of where I was at, right? But to get, just go sit. So I went and sat. I came back, and he called me, and he said, did you, did you find the place? And I'm like, yeah. He said, describe it. And I described it. He said, OK, that sounds like a good spot. He said, what were, you, what were you sitting on? I said, well, I was leaning against a tree. He said, what kind of tree was it? You know, was it an evergreen tree, or was it a deciduous tree? And I said, well, leaves. It had leaves on it. And he's like, a deciduous tree. I'm like, OK, a deciduous tree. He says, was it straight? Was it crooked? What kind do you know? And I said, oh, it was straight. And he said, which way were you facing? And I said, I was facing away from the tree. He said, no. West, north, northwest, east. I'm like, I don't know. How do I know that? He's like, was the sun there? I'm like, yeah, the sun was there. I'm like, where? And I'm like, oh my god, I don't even remember where the sun was. I'm like, oh. Well, the next day I went back. My straight tree was crooked. And I was facing west. Because I went after school and I watched the sun go down over there, you know? And I actually wasn't really sure, believe this or not, 10 years old, New Jersey, not totally sure that the sun set in the west. Well, later, years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, I'm teaching in all the high schools for the Monmouth County Park System, and I'm asking the, the kids in the classroom, while the sun is shining through the classroom windows, where is the sun at midday? And, you know, it's maybe 11.30 a.m. And they all point straight up. I'm like, really? I said, what time is midday? And they said, well, noon. I'm like, OK. Look at the clock. Look at the sun, and they're all like, oh my god, it's over there. <laughs> like, what direction is that? Nobody had a clue, right? Nobody knew that that was south. Um, and that's just the beginning. You know, we're talking about the sun. That's not an insignificant influence, is it? So how do you learn bird language? Or how does a kid learn bird language? So subtle. My mentor would send me out. I'd come back. He'd ask me great questions. Some that I could answer, always, I can answer the first ones really easily. Then he would get to my edge, and then he might drop a bomb with a really challenging question. And those challenging questions would haunt me because I knew he knew, and that I needed to know, and I would go after them with veracity, you know, and, and my curiosity grew into passion. So 
you know, by the time I was 16, I was really a super passionate naturalist and knew all the birds and knew the bird language, which nobody knew. And I didn't know and no one knew it. I thought everybody had a neighbor like this that asked questions. Um, I knew all the animal tracks. I could follow the animal tracks. I, I knew all the plants and there, a lot of them, not all of them, because there was many hundreds of species of, of wild plants, but I knew quite a few of their medicinal values and their edible values. So I ended up working for Monmouth County Parks as an interpretive naturalist, but I also taught the Native American you know, interpretation programs and so on. And I did that until I was 28. Um, but while I was at university, between 1979 and 1983, I did focused research on why some cultures are super connected and why others are super disconnected so that I could start a project in 1983 where I could introduce children in New Jersey to deep nature connections so that they would start to care about nature. And that was my experiment. And it actually worked really well. It worked so well that all of a sudden we had more children than we could handle and we started getting all the children with problems, you know? Um, so many adjudicated youth. We had kids from um, drug and alcohol treatment programs. We had inner city kids. We had foster kids. Um, but what we found was whenever we did this Nature Connection mentoring with them, their, all their health indicators improved. Their grades went up. Their self-esteem went up. You know, their uh, addiction um, dropped off. Their depression was changed. And we didn't actually know that that was going to be the result. But as it got bigger and bigger, we had to start training adults to meet the demand. And then I started to discover that it's really hard to train adults in Nature Connection and how to mentor it in children. Turns out, if you are raised with Nature Connection, you will instinctively do it for others. If you're not raised, it's really hard to, f to help you kind of retrain the way you respond in the moment. Um, so that's why we created the Art of Mentoring in 1995. But in 2007, we started a retrospective. And we were looking at, we have about 500 projects around the world based on our model now, right? And it's not my model. I was pulling this from different people already super connected. So I'm not saying I invented any of it. All I did was collect it, study the universal impact, how does it affect the nervous system, and figure out ways to plug it into modern times. Because you can't do it the way the Bushmen do it. You know, if you go to what the San Bushmen are doing in the middle of the Kalahari, you can't relate that to a kid in L.A. So, but what is the essence of what happened there? How does it affect the nervous system? And what can we model here to get the same impact, right? So there's about 500 projects that we've tracked around the world based on this model. And we decided to go back in 2007 and start asking questions. What's working? What's not working? What needs improvement? What can scale? What can't scale? Why not? Um, because, you know, I think you know. It, Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. Have you heard of that book, Richard Louvre? Um, he was sounding an alarm cry in 2005 about some alarming statistics um, of a change in mental, physical, emotional, uh, cognitive health in young people and directly correlating that to a loss of nature connection. So now, how many years later, 10 years later, the World Health Organization statistics on the impact of the loss of nature connection are absolutely terrifying. And they're at hitting 30% of the children right now in modern US America, 2018. 30% of the children entering a school are not really ready for school now. They're not functioning well in a lot of different ways. And the parents don't know what to do about it. 
they don't know how to get the children back connected to their nervous system in the right way. And occupational therapy is the fastest growing service industry in the US at 30% a year. And all schools now have to have multiple occupational therapists. And every year there has to be more. Because this problem isn't getting less, it's getting worse. But those children are also potential conservationists. And if they don't have nature connection, all the data basically says what? If they're not connected to nature, they're not going to care to conserve it. So the conservation membership is dropping at the same time the nature connection is dropping. These things are directly correlated. So now do you understand why I've been studying the superconnected cultures, trying to figure out what can we pluck and toss to the unconnected cultures to rapidly increase nature connection because going outside isn't enough. You know, if people just go outside and have a good time and come back in, it doesn't change a lot in their nervous system. It makes them feel better for a short time. But if you want permanent change towards responsible environmental behavior, towards conservation, towards mental health in a positive way, you actually have to know how to facilitate the connection experience. Does this make sense? Well, we asked the question, what is the most effective tool in the toolbox that we learned over here that seems to drive nature connection fastest for these people over here? Can you guess what it is? Bird language. <laughs> bird language. It is communication, but it's bird language. And why? Well, we didn't know at first. But it turns out, <clears throat> and that's why we wrote the book, What the Robin Knows. A bunch of us worked together on that for about 10 years. And then um, I ended up writing the book in the end um, through Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Um, because we were thinking, OK, here's a rapid model. Like, if you get families to practice bird language together, they all get connected much faster. And they learn about how connection works and why it works. And they learn some basic mentoring tools. So um, I wanted to give you that background because the Bird Language Leaders Project is now in 61 states. Um, we cooperated with the National Audubon Society uh, when we first created this. And, and we've done multiple trainings uh, around the world on bird language as a mentoring tool. So I'm going, to, I'm going to share with you tonight a little bit about how you can learn bird language um, on your own, because you wouldn't figure it out by accident. It's not something, first of all, that people even believe. So I'll give you one example. Um, I was at Rutgers University, and I was out in the field with a field ecologist and an ornithologist. I know this sounds like a setup for a joke, but it's actually uh, two of my beloved professors, and I love these guys. I learned so much from them. Um, and, they, and one of them was a dear mentor to me. Um, and we just had gotten off the bus, and we were all getting ready to go do some field thing. And I see some things happen, and I say out loud. And the professor is standing there, and the other people are kind of in a half ring as we're kind of milling around waiting to get started, right? I say, a Cooper's hawk. So they turn and look. And the ornithology professor says, where? And I said, right there. And he turns and he looks, and it's not there. And I said, no, no, keep looking. It's coming. He says, how do you know that? I said, bird language. He says, that's impossible, right? <laughs> this is the ornithology professor. OK, so I, you know, I knew that they were going to learn something <laughs> in that moment. I wasn't trying to be arrogant. I just was saying what I knew, right? And. You see the waves in front of that bird? Um, that bird does not move on a landscape without every other songbird within two, 300 yards talking about it. So 
at any given point in the day, you could be driving down Saratoga Avenue, and you can tell by what the pigeons are doing and what the starlings are doing and what the robins are doing. They're telling you all day long where the last sighting of a Cooper's hawk was. You can find one any time. So this bird became symbolic because you don't have to go into the deep Kalahari and learn from the Bushmen bird language. These are suburban, urban predators that teach bird language better than anybody else. And they work for free. You don't have to pay them, right? The songbirds are amazing instructors. They never lie. And you can learn it right on your door stoop. So this bird became symbolic. So this is really one of the most reliable bird language signatures, but you'll hear, you'll hear about that in a bit. So when I say nobody believes in bird language, I mean that. You know? um, it's really not easy to convince people that, you know, oh, well, you think you're Dr. Doolittle? I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But you'll, you'll find out how and why I know this and why other people need to know this. Now, uh, in our modern times, we can see it as a, a therapeutic return to nature connection, if you want, or a really amazing recreational activity that totally enhances your outdoor experience, tunes up your senses like you can't believe, and gives you an excuse to pay attention all the time. So this works really well for reestablishing nature connection. So here's the masters of nature connection. Uh, this is the San Bushman, and this particular man, his name is Du. Um, I picked him because I can say his name. All the rest of them have clicks and I can't do them right. And these are African lions and there's one, two, three, four, five, six of them in this picture. This is a baboon. Um, that's a blacksmith lapwing. And I don't remember the name of that one, but red-eyed red bulbul up there. This is a secretary bird. This is some small sparrow I don't know and I don't know that one either. But these are all birds in the Kalahari. What they all have in common is everybody is invested in always knowing where their predators are. Because you can't actually live if you don't. You know, you can't pretend there's no lions if you're a bushman. You can't. You can't pretend there's no hyenas, because the hyenas are actually more dangerous to your children than the lions are. The hyenas will literally come to camp every night and try to get your kids. How would that be to live in a place like that, right? We worry about letting our kids out in the backyard. These people actually have hyenas that are actually literally looking to eat their children every night, so they actually have to have strategies around that. And they don't lose children to hyenas. They don't lose people to lions. They don't lose people to poisonous snakes, and they have at least nine super deadly poisonous snakes uh, around them. I mean, I've seen all of them, and I just was there a couple weeks ago and saw three species of deadly poisonous snakes just walking around with them. You know, black mamba, there was a Cape Cobra and there was a Mozambique Spitting Cobra. And that's normal. This is their everyday. There's no antivenom that you could get fast enough where these people live. There's no medevac helicopters, there's no cell signal, but they don't lose their children to poisonous snakes either. And it just shines a bright light on something, and that is that their children are really prepared. <laughs> and their children are the only children on the planet that I know of that when a bird alarm goes off, all the children from this height to this height look simultaneously at it directly. And these are little kids, you know? And I go to communities all over the world where people are learning bird language again and trying to get it back into the communities, but bird alarms are going off and I'm standing there watching the bird alarms, I'm watching the kids, watching the bird alarms, watching the kids, and they're just all in their thing, you know? And then finally one kid sees what I'm looking at and sees me looking at them and sort of stops for a second and says, oh, he, he must want us to do something right now. And then they pick up on that cue and then they're like, 
oh, and they hear the bird alarms, and then they start looking in that direction, and another kid picks it up, and slowly they all start looking, right? But my goal is to get all the kids to turn instantly when a bird alarm goes off. Because that means their nervous system is actually in top condition, right? The Bushmen don't need occupational therapy. <laughs> actually, they're natural occupational therapists. But these guys know where the lions are. And, I'll, and more will come out of that in a minute. The birds and the animals are telling the Bushmen where the lions are. The songbirds are watching for their version of the Cooper's hawk because they also have that in the Kalahari. That one's called the Ovamba uh, sparrowhawk or the Shikara. These are two species that are like our Cooper's hawk. And the songbirds there are concerned just like they are here. So it's really fun for me to go there, not even know the name of the bird, but totally recognize the alarm pattern. So here's the little children I'm talking about. <clears throat> um, that's our translator on the right. His name is Franz Gosiami. And these Bushmen, I cannot pronounce their names properly, so I won't try. But they're all dear people to me. And they're really interested, by the way, in this project. And they can't believe that people exist with that little connection. They asked me questions like, how do they live? And I said, well, I think we could argue that some of the people I grew up with aren't actually living. You know, if we asked enough questions, we'd probably get right down to it. They'd probably admit, ah, this isn't living, right? Um, but they're very invested. They're actually partners now. They're collaborating with us on this educational project, and they're loving it. They're actually happy that their stories can help other people because they haven't been treated very well in the last 100 years. And, you know, we're really trying to help this one community because they're super invested in keeping their culture going because they're aware that that culture keeps these little ones ultra-curious. And those kids are so curious and they're so fun. So these, uh, what I'm going to share with you now are what we call the shapes of alarm. And they're in the book, What the Robin Knows, as I said, that's in the back. Um, my friend Keely Yu is a fantastic illustrator and he put a lot of life into it. And it's basically saying what the robin knows because uh, I want you to realize that this bird here in the center of the front cover is in your backyard, right? in your front yard. It's a bird that is immediately accessible to all of us. And here in California, almost all year round, we have access to this bird. And this bird is a fantastic teacher of bird language. Um, and you know, the robin knows. He knows where the coyote or the fox is. He knows when a person's coming. He knows where the horned owl is. He knows what the house cat's up to. He knows when the deer is alarmed. And he definitely knows that really dangerous profile of the Cooper's hawk, because that's the number one uh, enemy of the adult bird. We'll get into more later. <clears throat> so my friend Josh Lane, who contributed to the appendix of this book, helped put together some of these slides. And, uh, and he and I have been sharing this, this same slideshow for bird language leaders uh, all around. So let's look at two simple diagrams here. And let's look at the goal of bird language, OK? So you've got one where the deer is running away and the bird is flying away, and another where the deer is feeding and, and what we're looking at here is something that the science editor for our book basically said. It seems to me the goal of bird language is to make our zone of disturbance smaller than our zone of awareness. But most people in modern times walk around with a very big zone of disturbance and a very small envelope of awareness. So if you flip those, you have an entirely different experience with nature. That's a really super wonderful con condensation of everything that we're learning here tonight. That deer, by the way, wouldn't run away from that close. You know, that deer would probably be running like that from 100 yards ahead of an approaching person. You don't often see them leaving. 
You don't see the fox leaving. You don't see the bobcat leaving. You don't know that they slipped away from you because the birds are giving your approach away at a long distance. So my goal tonight will get you to understand how to dis diminish disturbance, expand your awareness, and have these really cool experiences with wildlife that doesn't fear you and see you as a threat. So that's our goal. Let's get our awareness bigger than our disturbance. So this is what we don't want to do. <laughs> when people are coming, and I tell the story, it's a, it's a true story, um, but I, there was this young man who really wanted to get into our training program, and he was um, writing to us from Portland for about three years, and he wanted to get into this training program in Washington State. But he was too young, and he needed a host family. Um, but his mom was into it, and she was going to pay his tuition to do this training. And he had read every survival book he could get his hands on. You know, he had a knife like Rambo. He had this shelter in the backyard. He had a camouflage bandana neatly tied around his head. He had camouflage pants on, a camouflage shirt. And we expected him to show up. And I happened to be working with some of the, the more experienced trackers and, and bird language trainers. Um, and we were back in the forest. And we knew he was going to show up that day some days. Mom was driving up. We didn't know what time they were going to arrive. And she was going to drop him in the parking lot. And he was going to run down the trail to find us in the woods somewhere, right? So we are back there in the woods. And I see a bird plow coming at us, OK? And when you see a bird plow coming at you, you can set a timer for two minutes. I'm not exaggerating, OK? So I said, anyone have a timer? Jen Wolf says, yeah, I've got one. I said, set it, Jen. She said, OK. She hits the button for two minutes. You hear her going beep, 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 beep. You know, she gets it going on her watch. And then we all stood in an arc, half, half circle, facing the trail. All of a sudden, the bushes move. You hear footsteps coming, right? He comes through these bushes. You know, the salmon berries are hanging over the trail a little bit. And he kind of pops through the bushes. And there he is in all his camo gear, right? And he knows he's invisible, doesn't he? <laughs> right? And then he looks down at himself. And then he looks up at us. And then the alarm goes, dee, 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 dee. She said two minutes and turns it off. And he says, did you know I was coming? And we're like. We knew someone was coming. He's like, I think I came to the right place. <laughs> was I that obvious? <laughs> I'm like, yep, you were. Um, so you know, <clears throat> I've also talked at the Washington State Bowhunters Convention. And I taught bird language to these guys. And one of them raised his hand. And he says, what do we do about those red squirrels? And everybody in the room starts nodding like, yeah. Like the whole room was like, what do we do about the red squirrels? I'm like, what about the red squirrels? And they're like, well, God, they just totally give away the hunt. You know, if I, if I set up my stand, I get there in the dark, I use my flashlight, and I'm totally camouflaged. I got the best camo. It's totally rated for this and that. And the other thing, there's no way it can see me. I've set up on the tree. I stand perfectly still. The first light starts to come. And all of a sudden, the squirrel's alarming at me. And then the whole hunt is over. And I'm like, do you really think the squirrel can't see you? They really thought that. They spent a lot of money on camouflage. But I want you to imagine you're a squirrel, and you live inside that hollow tree, right? And you're playing with your sister and your brother, and you're wrestling, and your mom's getting like sick of that. And she's like, ah, and you know, she leaves. you know, And then one of your, your sister kind of goes out to follow her. And a second later, you hear this scratching sound, and these wings go by. And then all of a sudden, your sister's flying away in the talons of a hawk, right? 
And the two brothers are like, whoa. <laughs> Think about that. This is what they experienced growing up. They don't go out that hole lightly, do they? If they live, they learn to listen from inside their hole and then to peek out. So imagine you've gone up that tree a thousand times in your life. You know where you've hidden every single thing all over the place. And one day you come out and you open your eyes and you look out at your hole and suddenly there's this giant thing just under the hole, right? It wasn't there last night. Oh my God, what is that, right? Hey, 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 right? And then the bow hunter goes, and then the camouflage grease paint and all that. But all of a sudden there's this eyeball looking at him from this grease paint face, right? Imagine how disturbing that would be. What are we thinking? You know, we think if we put camouflage on, we're invisible? Who are these beings, these squirrels and these birds and these deer? They're smarter than we're giving them credit for. So, you know, this is the biggest secret to invisibility right here. If you know you're doing that, don't do it anymore. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're not a threat. And I wondered, why do the birds treat us like, you know, we're radioactive? Because they'll fly away from us for 100 yards. Um, and it's not like people are walking through the woods like shooting songbirds, walking really fast, right? I mean, if you were going to go out in the woods and shoot songbirds, you wouldn't walk through the woods fast, would you? It doesn't make any sense. I was like trying to figure out why do the birds fly so freaked out from modern people. And I thought, God, it must be a spiritual thing. But it isn't. It, I figured it out. I learned it from the Bushmen. And I didn't learn it from them. I learned it from hanging out with them. I saw the hunters walking on their way to go hunting. And when they walk to go hunting, they walk single file, three of them, and they walk really fast. And they don't care if they scare birds. They don't care if they scare wildebeest. They don't care if they scare kudu. And I'm like, I thought the Bushmen were supposed to be stealthy. Well, when it's time to hunt, when they find a fresh set of tracks, they immediately become invisible. And then they get, you know, I, they've brought me within, from me to that wall, to wildebeest and kudu. I mean, they, they're amazing at that, right? Because their bows are really weak, and they only shoot, like, from here to the back of the wall accurately. And it's the poison on the arrow tip that kills the animal, not the impact, right? So they have to get really close. And they can when they want to. But why try to get close to everything? You only want to get close to the thing you want to get close to. And they know exactly what they're looking for and exactly why. So if they got a mile to go, who cares if they scare the wildebeest? <laughs> well, guess who follows us? When the Bushmen hunters are out walking single file in this rapid pace and wildebeests are running off, all the songbirds are being scattered by the wildebeest and the shikra and the, the vamba sparrowhawk are following the Bushmen hunters and taking advantage of the startled birds that are flushed. Then I started to realize it isn't the people that they fear, it's the possibility that people are being followed by a cooper's hawk or a sharpshin hawk. I pushed that research a little further and then found out that there was an actual uh, ornithologist who did bird behavior studies in the Presidio in San Francisco and saw that um, our little bird, the sharpshin hawk, actually follows joggers and favors them if they have headphones on. Isn't that interesting? Follows joggers because joggers scare sparrows and scare starlings and scare robins and it makes it easy for the sparrowhawk in this case, the Sharpshin hawk, to pick off a bird that's fleeing in alarm. Because that right there is the same trajectory as a clay pigeon if you're using a shotgun and shooting those little clay pigeons that they throw up in the air. 
That's a really easy trajectory for a flying hawk. That's how I put the, that's bird language. See, that's the kind of stuff that, would you have figured that out on your own, right? I, there's no way. Like, if it isn't for all this collective observation and all this old wisdom, we would never learn bird language by accident. You know, you just never would. So, causing a bird plow is, are we done with that? Everyone going to stop causing bird plows? I, I vow from here on, no more bird plows. So here you have the tracks of an African lion. This is a young male. Um, he's got a mane. We saw him just a few minutes earlier. Um, he had uh, came, walked by with his brother while we were having coffee. It was quite interesting to see in the early morning. And we realized we weren't alone on that landscape. Um, and I noticed the behavior of the lodge manager changed also. All the years I'd been there before, he didn't carry a rifle on his back. <laughs> but on this day, he was carrying a rifle when we were out with the bushman. I said, oh, do you always carry a rifle? I've never seen you. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, I carry a rifle sometimes. I'm like, is everything okay? Well, I knew the lions were there. And he was trying to pretend everything was fine because I, I was a guest, you see. Um, but I knew everything wasn't okay. Um, and I was a little nervous because here I was out with clients on this landscape with the bushman. These two lions were heading in a trajectory that was essentially directly towards where we were taking our group to be with the Bushmen who were teaching us about gathering foods on the landscape. And when we got to these Bushmen um, gathering food, these women were just digging away, just super relaxed with their digging sticks, going after a Cambrua root, which is a worthy prize. Um, delicious and thirst quenching and wonderful for people who live in the desert, their favorite plant to gather. Uh, they have songs about it and they sing for it, you know, and they're all just digging away. This woman's doing the digging and people are waiting for the root to come up. And the three old men are there, Du, Hanama, and Guta, these three men. And they're all in that position that Guta's in, in that, that squat, you know, and they're just sitting in the shade under a tree. And I'm over, I'm about where you are, facing them and watching the women dig. And the year before, I'd done a research project, and I spent a week with them interviewing them about bird alarms. I'm like, was that a bird alarm? They're like, yes. I'm like, what is it? What does it mean? And they would tell me. And we were just doing field recordings with them, right? And no, we have a translator. Franz. Poor Franz. He works so hard, especially when he asks the women question, because all five women will answer at the same time. They do. And they don't think that's rude, because they can all understand everyone's individual conversation, because they're so good at listening to everything all at once. I think it's really interesting. They do not consider it rude to all talk at the same time. They expect you will be able to hear every single one of them separately. This is a click language, yeah. So here comes uh, this bird that the very year before they said, that bird, the black and white one, that moves in groups. It's like a, called a pied babbler, but it travels like, it's like a jay. It's super noisy, and they move in these marauding bands across the Kalahari. And they're always making a hellacious racket. But here comes a bunch of pied babblers in a group from the very direction that I know I last saw that lion like 40 minutes ago. And they were heading exactly this way. And I'm looking at the babblers. I'm looking at the Bushmen. I'm looking at the Bushmen women. I'm like, oh my god, this is not going to end well. I'm like, these poor Bushmen, they're losing it. You know, like, they're getting soft. They've lost their connection to nature. They are not paying attention to bird language. This is not good. And my body language must have been really obvious. And the old men are all looking at me and they're asking Franz, what's wrong with John? Uh, and I tell them. I'm like, you told me, the pied, pied babblers. Oh, and they start laughing, right? Um, and they, all three of them are doing this with their hands. And the women stop digging and everyone's now looking at me, listening to these three men 
who are now teasing me openly, right? They're like, and they're doing this with their hand while they're explaining something to me. And they're saying, no, that's just their business. The Pied Babbler is our friend. He always tells us when there's danger. Pointing to this nerve bed right here. What do we call that? That's now a proven phenomenon. Gut feeling, right? It's totally tied to your mirror neurons. They use this sense organ I discovered to read bird language. And they were saying, that's just babbler nonsense. Babbler to babbler nonsense. That's their language to themselves. They tell us when there's danger from lion. And I thought that was super interesting. And I kind of had to really rethink the whole experience. And I said, now, wait a minute. If the Bushmen are relaxed in the Kalahari, <laughs> why am I worried? You know what I mean? Like, these people don't miss a beat. They don't miss a beat. When there was these women sitting in a group on the ground, as some of the same women, and they were talking away, and they were making crafts, and there was people visiting with them, and Franz was walking around translating for everybody. And about 40 yards away, this prof uh, professor who's founded a school in LA called the Manzanita School, Dr. Paul Aston, he's been learning bird language and teaching it to the kids at Manzanita School, and it's totally up their creativity. Like, it's totally working for accelerating and optimizing children's cognitive uh, functioning, bird language. And he's totally seeing that. And he, he says, hey, John. I think there's a bird alarm. I'm like, really? So I go over with them, we walk away, and these women, they don't speak English, they don't know what we're talking about, and they didn't hear us anyway, because they were busy talking to each other, but maybe I shouldn't assume they didn't hear us. They seem to hear everything. And so we go way over there, about 40 yards away from the group of people, and we grab Franz, the translator, because he also knows the snakes in the Kalahari, and uh, we walk to this bird alarm, and sure enough, there's a mamba up in the tree, or a cobra, we can't tell, but we're not going to get any closer to find out. And there's three different species alarming around it. There's um, um, a fork-tailed drongo, and there's gray-headed sparrows, and there was another bird that I don't know. And they've gathered around, they're making this racket. <clears throat> and Paul said, I got it! I got my first snake alarm! You know, so he was like, yeah, I did it! I'm like, yeah, great. So we go back to camp. And I said, come on, come with me, Paul. Franz, please come, you know. So I go over to the women who are sitting on the ground, and they're talking away, right? These women are sitting in this half circle, and there's five of them. And I said to them, do you hear any bird alarms? And without looking, they all go like this over their back and point directly at that mamba alarm, which was probably 40 yards away. Totally not really obvious from where we are, and there's all kinds of noise going on. And they said, black mamba, don't go near it. And that was it. Then they went back to talking to each other. That's cool. That is so cool. And that's who these women are. And so I'm worried that they're not paying attention. The reason they're alive is because they've been paying attention for 200,000 years in that place, right? They know the language of the animals like nobody's business. And it's amazing to spend time with them. So here's something going on. This is something that happened probably in your yard this morning. There's a American robin up on top of a evergreen, looking super relaxed, right? No. That behavior is not relaxed at all. This. When a bird is relaxed, it looks like this. Right? How's that? Does it make you feel comfortable? What if an REI employee ran in the door, turned around, and went like that? 
You'd know what that meant, right? So that's called sentinel behavior. And this is a flicker, and that's a robin. And when those two sentinel at the same time, they make certain sounds that tell you 100% certainty there's a Cooper's hawk. And they'll tell you exactly where it is. So both of them are in your yards. Start watching for them, OK? This is cool for us. This is a local guild. We call these alarm guilds. You know, When certain birds get together and say certain things and show certain behavior, it's 100% that you can predict what's on the other end of that. Right? That's how I got the professors that I wasn't trying to get. I just saw the alarms and the robins and the, and the different birds that were in the area, and the flicker was included. Recognized that flicker alarm, recognized the robin panic, saw that incredible bird plow coming from the approach of this hawk. Um, and a minute later, there was the hawk, right? So that's how it works. You'll find this works really well. So I'd like you to prove me wrong. Go home and try it. Sit outside for 15 minutes every day and watch for this and see if you don't see it, because you will. You're like, oh, there's no Cooper socks. I've been living in this neighborhood for 20 years, never saw one. You're going to start seeing them now. You're going to realize that they're there. They're passing through your yard probably two, three times a day. Okay? Maybe more. I think it's easy two, three times a day in our yard. Mandy Lee and I live in the same house in Soquel, and we sit out half hour, 40 minutes, maybe an hour a day, and we definitely have at least one or two Cooper's Hawk experiences every time we're out there, right? So that's how often it's happening. But they're also really clever. You don't get to see them. So here's this shape again, sentinel. Sometimes sentinels are up and looking in the distance. Sometimes they're up and looking down. In this case, you know, a crow in suburbia, looking down at a dog at a fire hydrant. I, I don't know about the choice. I said to Keeley, I'd actually like you to only use things in these pictures that you've seen yourself. He said, well, I did see this. So I'm like, OK. So this is from Portland, I guess. The crows sentinel at small dogs at fire hydrants. Um, but it does get the point across, right? You can find a fox by watching what the crows and the ravens do out on the landscape. You know, there's a beautiful open space trust um, Hopefully, friends of you guys, the Peninsula Open Space Trust, and there's a beautiful property out in off of Gazas Creek Road over there near Pescadero. And I was with a group of people, and we saw the sentinel behavior from a couple of ravens, and they were just looking down, and then they went about their business, and we just went right over to where they looked down, and we came upon a deer kill, and a bunch of coyotes ran out. Um, just that looking down. They don't look down for nothing. You got to remember that. These guys are invested in doing only what's necessary. So we'll put this in the category of ground predator alarms. So here's some tracks from a coastal property um, up near Pescadero. I won't tell you what it is yet, but Josh Lane sees these tracks, takes a picture. He knows what the animal is, but he sees California quail and juncos and American robin forming an arc and making alarms looking down. So they're in sentinel behavior, but they're alarming down at something. But you can see a general arc in the shape of their position. Okay? So he's like, I wonder what that is. And he stares into that space in between the bushes, and out pops a bobcat. You know? So um, Josh put this together. He actually made this story. Obviously, a little bit uh, rudimentary animation, but it gets the point across. right? Um, you can totally find bobcats by exactly that. And I'm telling you, you can't walk on these open space trust properties and these uh, open landscapes here on the California coast and not have bobcats near you. But you will never see them until you recognize their bird alarm. Once you learn to recognize that bird alarm signature, 
then you can actually put yourself in a position where you'll get to see them before they see you, which starts to make you feel kind of cool. You can actually feel cool from bird language, too. So we call this shape, you know, the cat alarm. Um, when your house cat is in that kind of body language moving along, um, it will be told on. That same body language, our mountain lions cause the same alarm pattern, but bigger. Um, in Africa, the leopards cause this alarm pattern. Um, I was just, maybe three weeks ago, I actually found a leopard based on this pattern from Franklins and squirrels. I wasn't alone, there was a couple other guides there. But we paid attention to this bird that's like our quail called the Franklin or the Spurfowl over there. And then we had um, these tree squirrels and then we had some other birds that I don't know what they were and we had some starlings. The starlings, and they're not like our starlings, these are the glossy starlings. They, they fly down and they do a little dip in their flight and they let out a certain vocalization, but they only do it once. But directly below it was a leopard in the grass. You know, so this pattern will serve you. Um, I have found mountain lions for biologists using bird language and the mountain lion had a radio collar on it and the scientist had the machine to find it and I said, is it possible that the lion is right at the base of that cedar tree right there? He's like, uh, I don't know, I have to go get my antenna thing. Um, and I said, he said, why? And I said, well, because the wrens and the sparrows and the robins are t doing a total cat alarm and it's in those ferns, whatever it is, right at the base of that cedar tree. Would it be that close to us? And he said, yes, they're frequently that close when they have a kill. So here's a goat that somebody's goat was killed during the night. He said it would be totally typical for lions to do that here in western Washington. So he ran and got his radio thing. And it was too close for the big antenna. He pulled it off and stuck a paper clip in it. And he was like, yep, there it is. It's got to be right there at the base of that tree. I'm like, bam. <laughs> right? Um, so it works for our mountain lions as well, which you should really pay attention to, right? Because if you're moving around in the daylight and you're worried about lions, you really don't have to think that they're not, you know, they're hiding on you, but they're not invisible to you if you learn a little bit of bird language. Not a lot, just a little bit. Does that make sense? We found this leopard using the same thing. Um, that was a couple of years, that was the year that Josh went. Josh was so excited that the guides that we were working with had been raised by the Bushmen as, as uh, children, learned all the bird language and tracking secrets from the Bushmen, and now as guides, they were able to actually park knowing where the leopard was gonna show up. So they actually literally got ahead of the leopard and parked and turned off the engine of the safari vehicle, and then we just waited, because they tracked the bird language and then predicted where this animal was gonna appear, and it would appear and walk right to the truck. Looking quite relaxed too, huh? Wonderful. So here, speaking of quite relaxed, if you are dealing with um, a house cat, the birds aren't necessarily alarming at the cat. They're usually alarming at the intention of the cat, you know, the body language and the general mood of the cat. So a cat in a relaxed body language like this with the tail up, feeling all happy, um, doesn't cause much of an alarm. It just has respect. Do you know what I mean by that? That bird only flies high enough but it puts itself in a position where it can keep an eye on the cat in case it changes its mind, right? If the mood suddenly changes, because you see that too, don't you? Your house cat's totally chill. All of a sudden it spots something and then a second later it's totally hunting. Um, so they're not gonna take it for granted, but that little alarm shape right there is what we call a hook. They're gonna fly away from the approaching danger, circle back, and face the approaching danger. 
That is what you want to have happen to you. Not a plow, a hook. Okay, that's a good sign. That means you're getting somewhere. So a bunch of hooks all in a row from like a trotting fox or a trotting coyote, we call popcorn. Kids named it that because they see the birds popping off the top of the bushes and they're like, oh, the birds are like popcorn. So we, we like that alarm and I like that kids named it. So that's the popcorn alarm. Really indicative of a trotting animal, but the most common trotter in our area is a coyote or a gray fox or a house dog. So popcorn will tell you where that's happening. This is my favorite, the weasel alarm, because weasels appear, and then a second later, they disappear, and then a second later, they reappear, and they're always going back over their own trail, and so the birds hate that, because they never know where it's going to appear. So when they see it, they shout like crazy, so a song sparrow alarm for a cat might be, sheep, 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 but for a weasel, it's like, sheep, 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 right? And then all of a sudden, it's silent. And then it's like, where did it go? <laughs> oh, sheep, 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 like this, right? So you have this intermittent, intense agitation followed by silence. And if you see it, it's obvious. When you see the birds acting like that, you're like, what in the world has gotten into them? And then you get over there and you're going to spot a weasel. We have a lot of weasels around here. Um, we just never see them. <clears throat> Uh, you'll see them dead on, on Highway 1 a lot, but it's more fun to see them alive. And the song sparrows on the coast will totally show you the weasel. So I told Josh Lane that when I went over to Africa, the mongoose creates a weasel alarm, right? Very similar to our weasel alarm. And he came over to um, Africa with me one year because his hope wasn't to see a leopard. His hope wasn't to see a lion. He wanted to see a weasel alarm and find a mongoose because of it. So it's about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It's this pack of wild dogs, this is the alpha dog using an elephant turd for a pillow, <laughs> is completely full on Impala. It's got this huge distended belly, and the whole dog pack is just sleeping it off, right? So on a hot day, it's nice to look at sleeping wild dogs for about 10 minutes. But there's nothing else really to do, so you might as well just stay there, right? So what was kind of fun was that the wild dog was asleep, but he was checking out bird language. His ears were moving anywhere there was a bird alarm going off. And at one point, his ears go like that in a particular direction. And Josh listens over in that direction to see what he can hear. And he hears totally freaked out starlings, totally freaked out squirrels, followed by silence, followed by freaked out, followed by silence. He's just like, Brian, to the guide, do you think that could be a mongoose alarm? And Brian listens. He's like, could be. So after about 45 minutes of watching sleeping dogs lie, he convinced Brian to drive the vehicle over to see if it was something. And Josh got that picture. This was his trophy. He was so proud of that picture. He was just like, I totally got a picture. I totally found it by the, by the weasel alarm, John. You were right. It worked. You know, that mongoose jumped up on the termite mound just for Josh. Um, I just want to thank everybody. You're so curious, and I love that. Thank you so much for your interest um, and, and being, being with the bird language. I, I try to drive home the point that nature connection is directly linked to conservation and responsible environmental behavior, which makes things like this possible, right? And nature connection 
is falling away. So we need tools to bring it back. Consider bird language, consider supporting it. Um, the Nature Connection Mentoring Foundation is the sponsor for bird language leaders. If anyone wants to make a donation, uh, Garrett has pledge envelopes in the back. Um, and other than that, please support the Castle Rock State Park uh, entrance. And this is a new gem. Thank you to the Semper Virens and to REI for giving us a place to have a good conversation tonight. So thank you again. I'll be back there signing for anybody. Okay. All right. And there you have it. I'd like to thank John Young of Eight Shields for contributing his research and knowledge to this podcast. If you're interested in knowing more about John and the language of birds, I can't recommend enough his 2012 book, What the Robin Knows. For more information about bird language workshops with John, check out 8shields.org. That's the number 8, shields.org. And remember... Semper Virens Fund will celebrate the 50th anniversary of Castle Rock State Park in 2018. For more information about the 50th anniversary and upcoming lectures like John's, please visit castlerock50.com. Finally, I invite you to learn more about Semper Virens Fund and our 118-year history of redwood conservation by visiting sempervirens.org. That's S-E-M-P-E-R-V-I-R-E-N-S dot org or giving me a call at 650-949-1453 extension 207. This has been the Semper Virens Fund Podcast. I was your host, Ryan Masters. Our theme music, which you're listening to now, is called Two Guru. It was composed and arranged by Heath Proskin and performed by Herod, Payne, and Proskin on January 31st, 2016 at the Pierce Winery in Monterey. To hear more, visit heathproskinmusic.com. So, until next time, may the forest be with you.